Good morning. Let's try again. Good morning. There we go. Um, act like you didn't stay up late watching that game. Um, <laughs> you know, as I was, as I was studying um, for this week's lesson, um, I came across a quote from this guy named Harold Pinter. He's a, uh, he's a British playwright. And he wrote something that just kind of made my head explode, and I felt like all of you should have your head explode this morning. So I'm going to read it to you, and you're going to have your head explode, and it's going to be funny to watch. All right, this is what he said. He said, there are no hard distinctions between what is real and what is unreal, nor between what is true and what is false. A thing is not necessarily either true or false. It can be both true and false. Now, um, it's actually funny to watch your heads explode. That's cool. Um, No, um, I want to take a moment just for a second to really think about what he's trying to say. He's trying to say that there is no way that you and I can determine the difference between what is real and unreal, what is true and what is false. In other words, you can't really know by your senses, you can't really know by any objective means outside of you, and so, in short, you and I really can't know anything for sure. I wonder if when he approaches a door, he tries to walk through it. Seriously. I wonder if he gets scared if a car weaves across the center line toward him. I mean, because there's no way to determine if that car is real or not, right? There's no way to determine that that door's there, so he might as well just try to walk through it, right? You see, perspectives like this dominate our world today. We hear things like, well, that's, that's your truth, and you can believe your truth, but I have my truth, and that's different, and, and it's okay that that's different. All the while not realizing that that's a completely unlivable way of existing. We can't actually act as if there is no difference between true and false We can't actually act as if there is no difference between what is real and unreal. And if we tried to carry that to its logical extreme, we would live in ways that are harmful to ourselves and others. We would. And because if you didn't believe the road is real, you could just drive anywhere you want. If you didn't believe that it was going to hurt if somebody punched you in the face, you wouldn't mind provoking people and saying really, really mean things to them, would you? You see, the reality is, even though we, we, we hear these kinds of things dominating our world, the, the truth is we can't live that way. You know, I, I, I look at our culture, and sometimes I think that this picture that's going to come up on the screen sums us up really nicely. It's like we come to these hard intersections of life where there's difficult disagreements and, and moments where people have different perspectives, and we just want to come to these, these difficult crossroads and say, you know what, everybody's right. Everybody's truth is the truth. It doesn't matter really what you believe. It doesn't really matter what you do. It's, it's all kind of just good. It's all good. It's all true. You have your truth. I'll have my truth, and everybody's going to be 
just fine. As, as, the, friends, as, as, the, as the Christian philosopher Francis Schaeffer rather astutely observed, we should note this curious mark of our own age, he said. The only absolute allowed is the absolute insistence that there is no absolute. What he's saying is that we can believe anything we want in this culture. We can claim anything we want to claim as the truth. The only thing that we aren't allowed to say, and the only thing that we can't say, is that something is absolutely true to the exclusion of everything else. Or that something is absolutely false. We can't say that something is absolutely good all the time and everywhere, and that some things are evil all the time, everywhere. We can't say that anything is absolutely real or absolutely unreal. Because this is, this is our world. This is our culture. The only question is, do we believe what the Harold Pinters of the world have said? This morning, we're in the second week of a Christmas lesson series entitled, Follow the Star. And in this series, we're focusing our lessons around the story of the wise men, or as some translations of the Bible call them, the magi, who traveled to see and worship Jesus after his birth. Now, last week, Dad taught us a lesson all about these wise men, who they were, where they were from, and so we're not going to cover all that ground today, so I would encourage you to go online to our website, or maybe open up the GNG app on your mobile device and listen to those lessons if you have, to listen to that lesson if you haven't already. But he walked us through the story of how the wise men followed the light of a brilliant star at least hundreds, if not a thousand miles to find the one that had been born the king of the Jews. And that star in the sky led them directly to the true star of Christmas, the very Son of God who had been born into the world, Jesus. And this baby that the wise men found in Bethlehem would grow to speak some of the most profound, difficult, and challenging words ever spoken. Jesus claimed in no uncertain terms to be the only path, the only way, the only link between God and humanity. And he spoke these words that have become our focus verse for the series. We find them in John chapter 14, verse 6. It's going to come up on the screens. Let's recite this all together, if you will. Here we go. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said, I am the only way to God. And Dad talked about that at length last week. But interestingly, he noted, and you might want to circle this on your outline, he says, I am the truth. The truth. Not a truth, not one truth among many. He says, I am the truth. In other words, in me, you will find real truth. And you will find only truth. In this world, you may find falsehood everywhere, but Jesus says, in me, and only in me, can you know the real truth. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to just start by defining the word truth. What does it mean? Well, the dictionary defines the truth this way, and I actually think this is a really super helpful definition. 
It goes like this. The truth is that which is in accordance with fact or reality. The truth is anything that is in accordance with fact or reality. So the truth is when you can look at something and say, that's real, or I saw that, or I felt that, it's in accordance with fact or reality, we can feel very confident that we are saying the truth when what we're saying or what we're believing or what we're thinking is in accordance with fact or reality reality. In other words, maybe just give you kind of a crude example. If, if somebody comes to me and says, you said this and I didn't like it, and I know for a fact, a fact, right, that I did not say that, or I said it in a way that was different than what they thought, I can say, listen, no, I did not say that. This is what I said. And so I am standing on a fact, I did not say that. I said this. Right? So I am telling them the truth. Right? Because the reality is in that situation, I could not have said what they thought I said and what I actually said. So if I tell them what I actually said, then that is the truth. You see what I'm saying? It's whatever is in accordance with fact or reality, because these multiple circumstances where everything is possibly true cannot exist. Right? So when Jesus says that he is the truth, what he is saying is that when we read the Bible and we read things about him, we read what he did, we read what he said, that it is truthful, factual, and in accordance with reality. It is the truth. So if he said it, we can trust it. If he did it, we can feel confident in doing it ourselves. If he told us to believe it, We can stake our lives upon it. He is in no uncertain terms claiming to be the source of undeniable truth. And so the question before us today, and I think it's an important question, is when those wise men followed that star and they found themselves before a young child that they believed had been born the Savior and King of the Jews, what truths could they have known from that experience? In other words, they come all this way, they sit, spend time with this child. What is it that they could have actually known? What truths could they have learned from that experience that they could have staked their lives upon? And consequently, what truths can we learn from the account of their meeting of Jesus that we can base our lives upon? I believe that this morning, by following the star along with the wise men, we can discover three very important truths about the God who came into the world as this small child. So let's set the scene once again. We're in Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So, so who are these Magi again? Just a quick reminder. They're politically powerful, well-educated, and wealthy individuals who came from the area of either Media, Persia, or Babylon. We're not exactly certain 
Um, but the reality is that they were very likely influenced by exiled Jews like Daniel from the Old Testament. They would have come in contact with the Jewish religion and they would likely have known about the Jewish anticipation of a coming Messiah. So when they saw the star appear, they began the long journey across the Middle East to find the child that they believed had been born the king of the Jews. Now, as we learned last week, they stopped for a time in Jerusalem. Even though the star was presumably pointing them on to Bethlehem, they stopped in Jerusalem, met with King Herod and the priests and the religious leaders to ascertain where the Messiah would be born. But in Matthew chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, it says this, After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed on coming to the house. They saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the whole story of the wise men in the New Testament. And I think, I think so often we end up getting wrapped up in the history of these wise men. How many of them there were, maybe? The gifts that they brought, the travel that they put in. And I think we often fail to adequately focus on the fact that these wise, educated, politically powerful men came all that way to offer sincere worship to a child. It says, we have come to what? Worship him. We have come to worship. That, that was their point. That was the reason for the gifts. That was the reason for the travel. That was the reason for the, everything they put themselves through. It was to come and worship And when we think about worship, we invariably think of God. We almost never, think about about the, the use of the word worship, just in modern everyday language. You almost never hear that word outside of the context of religious expression. Do you? You almost never hear that word being used if it's not in connection to some type of religious experience. Because worship, by its very nature, is training our minds toward God. It's, it's, it, worship is, is the process of connecting ourselves with God. And so we almost never hear that word in any other context. And so these men traveled all that way to worship and connect with God because at some level they believed that what they were experiencing them was guiding them to the truth. And I believe... They worshipped him because of three truths that would have been very evident to them as they went through this experience. And there are three truths that I think can impact us. The first is this. The wise men knew and believed that there is a God. The wise men knew and believed that there is a God. Now, now let, me, let me deal with something right up front. There may be some of you going, okay, J.D., hold up a second. Just because they saw a star, and they traveled a long way, and then they saw a kid, and they had this kind of wild experience where they kind of believed that maybe he had something to do with God, doesn't necessarily prove that there is a God, does it? I mean, if all they had was an experience, star, travel, kid, where's the proof of God in all of that? And you know, to that objection, I would say this. That's true. 
That's true. If all they had was the simple experience of seeing a star, following it, and showing up in front of some kid, if that's all they had, then there's really no proof of God in that. But, thankfully to those of us who believe what the Bible says, that's not all they had. They didn't just have a weird kind of, you know, coincidental set of experiences. You see, they knew there was a God, and they believed that there was a God, because through this set of experiences, they were able to verify that God has revealed himself as true to his word. They were able to verify that God has revealed himself as true to his world. His word. Think about this. The world of the Magi, so, so this Babylonian, Medo-Persian uh, empire area, right? the world of these Magi had come from a place where it was definitively influenced by Jewish culture. You see, the exile that took the Jews from Jerusalem to Babylon, it brought thousands and thousands of Jews into this area of the world. And along with them would have come very distinctive Jewish religious expressions, as well as, quite likely, the Old Testament scriptures at least many of them. So these magi may have had access to some of those Old Testament books, and they certainly would have had access to the prophecies within them. And so when they began to see Jewish prophecies like the one in Numbers chapter 24, Dad read a little piece of this last week, I'm going to read you one line from it today, they began to take notice. Look at this, Numbers 24, I see him, but not now, referring to this Messiah that was going to come. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob, and a scepter will rise out of Israel. A scepter was a, was a, a typical symbol for a king. And so, the God that the Israelites worshipped had promised that a star would rise out of Jacob, announcing the birth of a new king. So when these men saw the star, they headed toward Israel to see if it was actually true. And when they arrived, they could very easily have seen that God was fulfilling other prophecies from the Old Testament as well. In the book of the prophet Isaiah, now notice this, Isaiah lived about 700 years before Jesus walked the earth and approximately 100 to 115 years before the Israelites were exiled into Babylon. All right, and he spoke these words, again, 700 years before Jesus walked the earth. Notice this, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. A virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will, and will call him Emmanuel. That word Emmanuel literally just means God with us. So this prophecy from some 700 years before Jesus came onto the scene had promised that a virgin would conceive, would give birth to a son, and they would call him Emmanuel, God with us. That God would literally come into the world through a virgin conception. And here were these wise men, right, who had traveled all this way, standing in front of a child who was literally born of a virgin, and who had been announced by the angels as God in the flesh. Now, to be fair, 
The account of Matthew does not spell out specifically whether or not Mary told them that she was a virgin. It does not tell us if she told them about the angel visiting her to tell uh, to tell her about the, the conception of the child. But regardless, the reality is that these wise men knew the Old Testament scriptures and were seeing their fulfillment before their very eyes. And guys, I think this is something that we have to... We have to if, especially if you're a Christian in the room today, I think we have to pay very close attention to this because I think we often don't. One of the greatest arguments for the existence of God is fulfilled prophecy. One of the greatest arguments for the existence of God is fulfilled prophecy. I mean, simply put, in a universe without God, if there is actually no God, then fulfilled prophecy should not happen. Fulfilled prophecy shouldn't happen. There should be no way for me to accurately predict something that's going to happen 700 years from now. You think about it, in 2719, I will likely have been dead for more than 650 years. Okay, if the numbers work out, right? right? The reality is there is no way I should have any clue what the world is going to look like, what people are going to look like, what things are going to happen between now and 2719. Much less should I be able to predict with any kind of accuracy what's going to happen in 2719 if what I'm predicting is completely and biologically impossible. Okay, I have two kids, Virgins don't conceive, right? We understand this, right? So not only was Isaiah predicting something that was going to happen in 700 years, he was predicting something that literally can't happen if there is no God. The fulfilled prophecy is one of the greatest arguments for the existence of God because you see these things that were written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus ever walked the earth and then you see what was written immediately after he was walking the earth and it's boom, 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 he did this, he did this, he did this and it was told us that that would happen. And you see, what the wise men didn't know But we have the benefit of having the whole New Testament, which they obviously didn't have at the time when they visited Christ because it wasn't written yet. But the reality is we can see things that they can't see. They saw Jesus fulfill a few prophecies, a star and a king to be born, a virgin to conceive. That whole They they saw those prophecies being fulfilled, right? But there were literally dozens, even hundreds of prophecies from the Old Testament that would go on to be fulfilled by Christ through his life. Moses, okay, let me give you a couple examples. Moses, living somewhere around 1,500 years before Jesus. All right, so think, double the difficulty of Isaiah's prophecy is Moses' prophecy, right? Because it's 1,500 years, almost double, the, or more than double, the amount of time. And he said this, the Lord your God, this is Deuteronomy chapter 18, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. And then down in verse 18, it's actually God speaking now. And God's saying to Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among the Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. 
So Moses prophesied that a new prophet would come and teach and lead the people. And what we see in the New Testament is that Jesus did exactly that. There are numerous reports from the New Testament that show that when Jesus came, he taught the people in such a way that it was much more powerful than the other teachers that were teaching at that time. The authority with which Jesus taught was so much different. It was recognizably different. And people began to think, man, this might be the guy. But not only that, Jesus was given the power to do miraculous things. And in one particular instance, I think this is super powerful, in John chapter 6, Jesus does what many of us refer to as the feeding of the 5,000. He takes five little loaves of bread and two fish, and he divides it, and somehow it feeds all 5,000, just the men, so quite possibly there were women and children there too, so we only... We don't know how many, but upwards of ten to 15,000 people possibly. And he feeds all these people with just this, this tiny little amount of food. It's a miraculous thing. It's completely impossible by any normal human means. And look at the response of the people. John chapter 6, verse 14. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they saw him feed, they, they ate the food, right? They, they saw him perform a miracle, something that should not be able to happen. They, he performs the sign and they say, surely this is, circle the phrase, the prophet who is to come into the world. So, so notice, all right, these are Jewish people, all right? These are the people who know the Old Testament scriptures the best. They're the people who believe the Old Testament scriptures the most. And they're looking at Jesus and they're looking at these prophecies and they're saying, this guy, this guy checks the boxes. This guy meets the criteria. This has got to be the guy, right? This has got to be the prophet, right? The one Moses was talking about 1,500 years ago. This is the guy. Got to be him. Look at what he's doing. Look at how he teaches. That's what Moses said was coming. But we aren't done. Take a look at Psalm 22. This is written approximately a thousand years before Jesus came into the world. And it was written by King David. Look at this. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Are these words familiar to you? For many of you, you if you know the story of Christ, you know that he uttered these exact words hanging on the cross, dying for our sins. Remember, this was written a thousand years before Jesus walked the earth. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then look what David writes next. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. Notice this, circle this phrase. They pierced my hands and feet. What's that sound like to you? Does it sound like a Roman crucifixion? Because it certainly looks like the picture of Roman crucifixion that we find in the Bible and that we find historically. They pierced my hands and feet. Remember, David's writing this 1,000 years before Jesus walked the earth, over 900 years before Rome came to power in Palestine. Why on earth is King David 1,000 years before Jesus walks the earth and 900 years before Rome comes to power in that area of the world writing about a Roman execution style that would not have been utilized at that point in time in their history in that location? 
God said it was going to happen. And it happened. Notice this, verse 17. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. We're actually going to read a passage here in just a little bit that shows this happening. Verse 18, they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. We see this, we see this happen to Jesus as he's being executed. The, the Roman soldiers underneath him, like rolling dice for his garments and, and like parsing out his clothes among them. We see this absolutely fulfilled in Matthew 27, 35. Guys, simply put, one of the best arguments for the idea that there is a God comes from the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of literally hundreds of Old Testament prophecies. None of this is an accident. None of this is coincidental. So the truth that we can glean from this is clear. There is a God, and we can be sure of it because he has proven himself by being true to his word. When he says something is going to happen, it happens. The wise men followed that star and they saw revealed prophecy firsthand. And when you and I open our Bibles and we read about Christ, we can know that he is true to his word because he fulfilled prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. But there's a second truth that I believe the wise men and we also can learn from what they saw in this account of their meeting of Christ, and that's this. God does not concern himself with power, wealth, or social status in his pursuit of people. God does not concern himself with power, wealth, or social status in his pursuit of people. I want you to notice something. With regard to the wise men, Matthew 2.11 says, on coming to, circle this phrase, the house, the house. Notice, Jesus was in a house. And these powerful, well-connected, well-educated, wealthy men had traveled a thousand miles to find this child, and they stopped in Jerusalem, not because the star stopped there, right? The star didn't stop in Jerusalem. The star was leading them on to Bethlehem, but they stopped in Jerusalem. Why? Because they assumed he would be there. The hotbed of political and religious power and authority. Why would the king that was supposed to be born not be born there? It would make so much sense. And to be sure, they ended up in front of a king. Those wise men ended up in front of King Herod. They ended up in King Herod's palace. They ended up talking to all the religious and political authorities of the day. And yet, that star led them not to Jerusalem, but to a tiny little town like Bethlehem and to a normal little house. You see, one of the fascinating things about this story is that Jesus came not as a politically powerful king, not as a wealthy monarch, not as a person claiming great status or social position. The wise men found him as a child of probably poor to middle class parents who had no significant social status whatsoever. Think about it. His supposed father was a carpenter. And his mother would have been a woman whose premarital pregnancy would have garnered her a lot of public scorn. You see, the fact that Jesus came into the world this way would likely have been stunning to the Magi. Sure, sure, there, there was a powerful star pointing its way to, to 
to Jesus. There's no question about that. But everything else about this child is completely nondescript. You know, I thought about this story the other day, and I was, I was just kind of, I was just kind of sitting there thinking about it. And I wonder, I wonder about the wise men. Like, so they come and they see Jesus, and there's, I'm, I'm assuming there's this kind of cool emotional moment. They're seeing fulfilled prophecy. It's a pretty cool thing. But I wonder if when they rode away, I wonder what their conversations were like. I wonder if they're like, how's this kid ever going to end up as the king of the Jews? I mean, how's he going to get from A to B, right? Like he's in Bethlehem, this no-nothing little tiny town. Look at his parents. I mean, they're, they're just normal, regular people. How's he going to end up being the king? Like I wonder if they, if they thought about that. I wonder if they like believed at some level that really this was the king and this was the one that God was going to send, but how's he going to get from here to there? It doesn't really make sense to us. How's he going to go from this tiny little town to being the the king of the Jews? How's that going to work? I wonder if they thought about things like that. But guys, the, the fact that Jesus came the way he did reveals something to us about his character and the character of the God that sent him into the world. Think about it. If he had come into the world with a powerful display of wealth and position and prestige, would it not be likely that we would come to believe that we ourselves would need to be powerful and wealthy and prestigious in order to become close to him? But we don't. You see, you and I can be close to God whether we're rich or poor, famous or anonymous, powerful or weak. How much money we have or don't have doesn't seem to matter to God because he sent his son into the world like that. What our skin color looks like, how much power we have, whether or not people like us, what our skill sets are or aren't, what our history is or isn't. None of that seems particularly important to a God who came into the world like that. You know, I was thinking about this the other day. I I thought, you know, people like me don't just get to be connected with the super powerful and wealthy. Like, I I don't get to call up LeBron James and go, hey, dude, you want to hang out? I, don't, I, just, I just don't get to call up my representative from Ohio and say, hey, um, I got some ideas I'd like to talk over with you. You mind? Can I just swing by the office? Right, because people who aren't powerful and wealthy and connected don't just get to hang out with powerful and wealthy and connected people because they want to. You kind of have to be powerful and wealthy and connected to hang out with all the people who are powerful and wealthy and connected. And if you're not, you kind of don't most of the time, unless you pay some money. (laughs) You see, the way Jesus came into the world proves that we don't have to be powerful and wealthy and connected to be connected with God. Because he came into the world just like anyone else of us.
One of the most powerful passages in the New Testament comes from Philippians chapter 2, and it says this about Jesus. This is one of my favorite passages. I love this. It's so cool. It says, Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, in other words, he was God by nature. When he came into the world, he was still God. Even though he was in human flesh, he was by nature God. And it says this, he, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Think about this for a second, all right? So when you and I have something that we can leverage for our advantage, maybe it's a particular skill, maybe it's a particular talent, maybe it's a particular ability, maybe it's a particular amount of money, right? When we have something that we can leverage to move the world the way that we want to, we use it. I'm doing it now, right? I have a particular skill. I can speak publicly and it doesn't make me too nervous. So I can get up here and I can try to use this skill to leverage you to follow God, right? I'm using the skill and the gifts that God's given me to my advantage, right? And you do this too in your own life. But Jesus, when he came into the world, he had the ultimate advantage. He was God. And yet instead of leveraging that God's status to make life better for him, instead of leveraging that God's status to make life easier for him, instead of leveraging that God's status to get people to give him money and wealth and power and, and prestige, he, he put that aside, emptying himself of that lever that he could use to work the world in his way, and instead, what it says, rather he made himself nothing. He didn't leverage his God's status to get what God deserves. Instead, he empties himself of that, taking on the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness, just like every one of us. And being found in appearance as a human being, he became obedient to death. In other words, he was willing to humble himself, to live a life like we live, and to die a death like we die. Even death on a cross, the worst possible in the most excruciating way of dying so that he might save us. That's who Jesus is. He came into the world not to assert his God status or get what he wanted. Instead, he came to serve Every single one of us. Guys, the reality is this. The God of the Bible models the humility he demands of us. The God of the Bible models the humility he demands of us. Now make no mistake, in the Bible, if we read it and we read it with clear eyes, God acknowledges that he is God. He is the king. He gets to do what he wants. The Bible is clear about this. And he expects that we will acknowledge our need for him and for his grace. He expects that we will trust him. He expects that we will live our lives in accordance with what he has described in his word. Make no mistake, he demands that kind of humility. We do not have a God who is in this for our interests. <laughs> we have a God who is determined to accomplish his interests. 
Make no mistake. And yet, he not only demands that kind of humility, he displayed it in Christ who humbled himself and gave up for us. You see, what these wise men saw and what we can see is a God who has chosen to empty himself of power and wealth and prestige and worship in order to come into the world like any one of us so that he might save us. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter whether you have great opportunities or not. It doesn't matter what skill sets you have or don't have or the history that you do have or don't have. You're important to God because he has humbled himself enough to save you. Finally, there's a third truth that these wise men could have learned from visiting Jesus in Bethlehem, and that truth is this. God respects the freedom that he has given us. God respects the freedom that he has given us. Over the past few minutes, we've been talking about how Jesus came into the world as a child in a small town to parents who were not powerful and wealthy and influential. And one of the things that most strikes me about this is that God came into the world in a form in which he could not make anybody do anything. Think about it. Outside of being a baby that could cry and make mom feed him, right? And we all know babies have that power and, and they, have, they wield that very effectively, right? <laughs> Outside of that power, he had no power to make anyone do anything. He couldn't teach anyone anything because he couldn't talk. He couldn't force anybody to do anything because he was a baby, The God of the universe came into the world in a form where he couldn't make anyone do anything. Would you pick this form if you wanted to make people believe in you? If you wanted to force people to believe that you really were the son of God, if you were wanting to get the word out in such a way that everybody would believe that, 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 that Jesus is the son of God, if you were going to force it on the world and you wanted to get as many people as possible to believe it, would you do it this way? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think if you and I were running the marketing campaign for Christ, we would not pick a baby, we would not pick Bethlehem, we would not pick those parents. We would pick powerful and wealthy and influential kings. We would pick for him to come in such a way that he was so grand and so powerful and so big and so mighty that no one could possibly look at him and say, nah, don't buy it. And yet this is the way that Jesus chose to come. And what's fascinating is it not only applies to Jesus' birth, which the wise men knew about, but it applies in other powerful ways that we know about that they didn't. All throughout Jesus' life, he made a point of not trying to overrun the free will of people by doing miracles and doing showy stuff just for the sake of forcing people to believe. Check this out. This is in Matthew chapter 4. During the temptation of Jesus by the devil. So, so Satan comes to Jesus and he's trying to tempt him. He's trying to, to, to get him off course, trying to get him to change the will of God for his life. Look at, what, look at what Satan does. Then the devil takes him to the holy city, which is Jerusalem, and he has him stand on the highest point of the temple. Now, the, the temple mount, it's called the temple mount for a reason, because it's one of the highest points in the city of Jerusalem. And if Jesus and the devil were hanging out on the top of it, he would have been visible from almost every in the city, right? 
There would have been thousands of people milling around. This was a really popular place for people to be during the day. So, so everybody could have seen this. And Satan looks at Jesus and goes, hey, if you're really the son of God, throw yourself down. Jesus, you know ain't nothing bad going to happen to you. You know God ain't going to do anything. Oh, by the way, Jesus, let me quote some scripture at you. It's fascinating. Satan chooses to use scripture to try to tempt the Son of God. He says this. He says, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, Psalm 91, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. He's like, Satan, Satan's like, hey, Jesus, throw yourself off. Pretend like you're committing suicide, and then all of a sudden you'll get a couple feet from the bottom and go, and you're floating on the angel swings now, buddy. Everybody's going to see it, and they'll think you're the son of God. Check that. How cool would that be? You don't got to die. Just, just perform a cool miracle. Just do something that nobody could deny. And Jesus looks at Satan, who has just twisted a piece of really powerful scripture in Psalm 91, and he says to him, it is also written, Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, do not put your Lord the God to the test. In other words, Satan, I will not do a miracle. I will not perform a show for people to do something that they cannot comprehend and do something that they cannot deny and therefore override their free will to believe or not believe in me. I will not do it. I told you about this earlier. We're going to go to another example in Matthew chapter 27. Jesus is literally hanging on the cross. I told you about this one earlier. This is, this is, this is a moment where, where in, um, I'm trying to think it was, uh, Psalm 22. <clears throat> said they were mocking him. Jesus says, dogs surround me and people encircle me and they're mocking me and making fun of me. Look at this. Jesus is hanging on the cross and some of the religious leaders are saying things like this to him. He saved others. They said, he saved others. I mean, he made the blind see, he made the lame walk, he made the deaf hear. Why can't he save himself? Some Messiah. I mean, he's the king of Israel, right? Born king of the Jews. Wise man. Star. I mean, he's the... He's the real deal, right? Hey, Jesus, why don't you come down off the cross so we can all see it, and then we'll believe in you. Promise. Mm-hmm. You hear the mocking tone in this? Hey, Jesus, if you're really God, you know what? You'll come down off that cross. We'll all be able to see it, and then, uh, hey, man, we'll believe. We'll bow down right now. Right. Because that's how it works, Right? Jesus doesn't do it. But why doesn't he do it? As the reality is, Scripture teaches us from front to back that God provides and then he lets us decide. God provides and then he lets us decide. God has provided us a world in which to live. He's provided us, many of us, bodies that work really well. Minds that can think and read and know him. Vision to see the world around us in all of its complexity and recognize that there really must be a God. He has provided us with his son. 
who came into the world to die on the cross for all of our sins, he has provided everything necessary for us to know God and us to experience God and us to be saved for all eternity from our sins. He has provided us with everything. He has made the way, and yet he allows us to decide if we will believe. God is constantly inviting people into relationship with him, working in our lives, inviting us to notice and and experience him, offering his love and forgiveness, and yet he offers us the opportunity to choose him or not to choose him. The consistent vision of Jesus all throughout the Gospels is someone who is willing and able and and wanting to save people, but who will not force them through overwhelming means. So what the wise men saw in Jesus is a God who exists who has revealed himself through fulfilled promises, a God who identifies with the concerns of people from every walk of life, and a God who offers the opportunity to choose him and yet respects the freedom he has given us. So what do we do with a God like that? What do we do with this God? Because the reality is we have to make a decision about what we're going to do with this God because he claimed to be the truth. Make no mistake, Jesus doesn't force us to believe, but he has boxed us in with this claim that he is the truth because he is either the truth or he is not. And if he is the truth, then we had better well believe in him because our eternity depends upon it. He has boxed us in, and we have to make a decision. We will either believe or we will not. It's that simple, guys. And really, you know what? Maybe that's you today. Maybe some of you in this room today are interacting with this Christmas account and for the first time you're grappling with the idea that it may just actually be the truth. Maybe Jesus did come. Maybe he is God in the flesh. Maybe he's prepared to sacrifice himself for your sins and he has done so. Maybe he did come so that every one of us could choose to believe, not because we're forced to, but because we are captured by the beauty and the power of a God who is willing to go that far and deal with that much to save us. Maybe that's you today. And if so, really, no matter who you are in the room today, I want to encourage you to, do, to consider a couple things. If you would, take out that Connect card that's in your bulletin. Um, it should be, should be a little, I think it's green, it's either green or highlighter yellow. It's one of the one or two. I'm not sure. All right, but I want you to take out that communicate or that connect card in your in your bulletin. And I want you to look at the back. Flip it over to the back. There are three things that I really want you to consider this morning as we as we close. Three three potential responses to the fact that Jesus claimed to be the truth. Number one, if if today you're in the room and you haven't yet made a commitment to following Christ with your life. 
but you're grappling with it. You're hearing this story and you're going, man, he's really claiming to be the truth and I either have to believe that or I don't believe that one way or the other. And if, if that's you today and you think that you might just be willing to follow this God and you really believe that he might be the truth, I want you to encourage, I want to encourage you this morning to consider baptism. Baptism is one of those most powerful moments in the life of a Christian believer because it's that moment where we step out in faith and we say, this is who I am, this is what I believe, and I'm staking my life on that truth. I'm choosing today to follow Jesus with the rest of my life. If you've never done that before, we have a baptism celebration coming up next Sunday. And there's still plenty of time for you to get signed up for a baptism interview so that we can talk with you about what it means to be a a, a real follower of Christ. And I want to just encourage you, if you have not yet been baptized, but you think you really do believe that Jesus is the Son of God, we would love to baptize you next week. We would love to sit down and talk with you about that. And so if you would, please just check that box on the back of your outline that says, or on the back of your uh, communication card that says, um, hey, I I want to consider baptism. Secondly, there are many of you in the room today that have been believers for a long time. You've already been baptized, you've already done all those things, but, but I want to encourage you. If Jesus is who he said he was, and he really is the truth, then it's our responsibility as Christians to share that truth with as many people as will listen. Because we already heard today, he provides the way for all to be saved. It's our job as Christians to make sure that call is available to everyone. And so I would encourage you, out on your way out this morning, there are, um, there are a bunch of invitation cards that you can pick up about our Christmas Eve services. Christmas is one of those times of year where people are most willing to consider the claims of the gospel. So if you would, take some of these invite cards and go give them to people. Give them to people in your family. Give them to your friends. Give them to your neighbors. Give them to people that are behind you in the line. Now, pay, for, pay behind you in the, the drive-thru or something like that. Leave a, leave a great tip at a restaurant and leave one of these too. My encouragement to you is this, simply, guys, if we really believe that Jesus is the truth, then our job has got to be to get people who are not currently connected with him closer to the truth, and I would encourage you to do that. Finally, there's a third thing. Again, if Jesus is who he said he was, and we believe that he really is the truth, then we have a responsibility to grow and to deepen and strengthen our relationship with Christ who promises that he is the truth. And you know, I think about New Year's and we're coming in on that. We're not far away. And New Year's is a time where people stop and, and, and kind of think about, man, what do I want to do in the next year? How do I want to improve? How do I want to be better? We call it New Year's resolutions or goals or people, people have different approaches to that. But the reality is that the New Year, people spend a lot of time thinking about how they want to be better. But I wonder if many of us kind of get caught at that level of, hey, I want to I get more fit, or hey, I want to be a little more fi- financially stable, or hey, I want to go on this sweet vacation this next year. And those are all fine and noble goals, and those are good things. It's no big deal, right? But I think oftentimes it's very easy for us not to really focus on how we're developing spiritually. And so as we come toward the end of the year, um, we're, we're going to do something that I think is really kind of cool um, this year. On December 29th, we're going to have what we're calling Spiritual Health Checkup Sunday. Um, over the course of this, this past year, we've developed a tool that we, we kind of call the 4G Talk. Um, and and it's, a, it's a tool that will help walk you through your own spiritual situation as it is right now. 
And you'll be able to self-assess, how am I doing in each one of the four areas? Am getting, in other words, getting a relationship with Christ, understanding the truth about who he is. Um, how am I growing in that? Am I utilizing spiritual disciplines? Are there ways that I can grow in that? How am I giving, uh, in other words, giving of myself in service? Am I, am I serving anybody? Am I making a difference in the world around me by being the, the hands and feet of Christ in our world? Am I going with the world to tell the truth to people who need to hear it? Um, and we walk through each and every one of those four G's in this discussion. And it's an opportunity for you really to self-assess how you're doing spiritually and some potential areas that you might want to improve going into the next year. Um, and so on, on December 29th, Spiritual Health Checkup Sunday, there are going to be leadership team members and ministry directors and staff members who are available after both services to sit down and to talk with anybody who wants to walk through one of these spiritual health checkups. It's kind of like, you know, going to the doctor and getting a checkup. Um, it, it'd be the same thing as this. Um, and and, and the, the idea is you'll sit down and you'll just spend a little time talking with somebody about how you're doing in each of those areas, and how you might want to improve. Now, some of you may be asking the question, well, why do I need to sit down with somebody? Can't I just do it myself? Or can't I just get the form and walk through it myself and just do it privately? Well, of course you can. And we'll be happy to send it to you. If you want to do that, you can check that box, and somebody will contact you um, this week, and, and we can talk about that. But I want, to, I want to encourage you to at least consider doing this in a way where you, where you have to sit down with somebody else and talk about it. Um, there's, there's really three reasons. Number one, there's a little bit built in of accountability when we sit down and we actually talk with somebody about how we're doing. And, it, and, and trust me, this is not about somebody else evaluating you. Nobody's going to be looking across the table going, man, you really, you're a really terrible Christian. Um, no, it's you coming to another person saying, hey, this is kind of how I'm doing. Maybe I could get some ideas. And that's the second really good reason is the people that we're going to make available for you guys to sit down with are the kind of people who have spent a lot of time developing these spiritual disciplines and developing their own walk with Christ. And, and they're going to be able to provide you with insight and feedback into some ways that you might choose to take some steps to grow yourself in faith. And thirdly, I'll be honest, I've done about 30 of these this year. Most of them have been with, with a lot of the people you see behind you in the band, um, because that's the ministry I lead. I've, I've led almost all of those people through one of these this year. And I'll tell you what, almost the unanimous response to these has been, man, that was really helpful, or even, wow, that was really fun. It was really fun to just sit down and kind of talk with somebody about how I might grow spiritually. Um, and so, so this is a really cool thing that we're offering, and, and I hope that many of you guys will take advantage of it. If you just check that box on the back of your uh, Connect card that says, hey, I'm interested in a spiritual health checkup. I'd like, to, I'd like to know how I'm doing, and I'd like to get some ideas about how I could do better. That's an opportunity that we're making available to you, and I want to I offer that to you guys. And, and we're excited about this because we believe it can help you grow. Guys, one way or the other, whichever one of those or none of those that you choose to engage in, the reality is Jesus Christ has claimed to be the truth. The truth. And if he is the truth, then all of our lives has to get ordered around that truth. And we have to choose to focus our lives around that truth. We have to live in such a way that it displays that we believe that Jesus really is who he claimed to be. I pray we'll do that.
Father, we just come before you today thanking you for this opportunity. We thank you for the chance to know Christ in a deeper way and know who he has called us to be. Father, I just pray for each and every one of us that we'll live our lives in a way that glorifies you, that we will serve you, and that we will live as if we believe you are the truth. We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.